In the consult, we discuss cases that are violent and sexually violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the consult. I'm Julia Cowley, retired FBI agent and profiler and former special agent forensic scientist with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. And joining me today are my colleagues. I'm Bob Drew. I'm a retired FBI agent and profiler. And I'm Susan Kostler Drew, retired FBI agent and profiler. Today's discussion is about the murder of Marie Warren which occurred in Deerfield Township, Michigan, sometime between the evening of Saturday, September 30th, 2006, and the morning of Sunday, October 1st, 2006. Marie resided with her 37-year-old grandson, Jason, but he had stayed the night with a friend in order to go bow hunting on that Sunday morning. The last time Jason saw Marie was at approximately 8.30 Saturday evening. When he returned home on Sunday morning after bow hunting, Jason found Marie was missing. He noticed a heating pad, which was usually on Marie's bed, was on the porch and appeared to have blood on it. The top sheet on Marie's bed was missing, and there was a large amount of blood on her mattress, pillow, and her bedclothes. There was no forced entry, and the house did not appear to be ransacked. However, a gun safe was missing from Marie's bedroom. The safe contained two long guns and some jewelry. Jason noticed Marie's purse was on the kitchen table, and when he checked it, he found that her wallet was missing. There was an accordion-style folder on the floor next to the kitchen table in which Marie kept important documents and an unknown quantity of cash. The cash was missing. Marie usually kept this folder in her bedroom. When Jason checked his bedroom, he found a rifle he owned was also missing. Jason called a local hospital and other locations trying to locate Marie, and when he was unsuccessful, he called the Lapeer County Sheriff's Office. The call was received at 10.15 that Sunday morning. Just as sheriff investigators were securing the house for crime scene processing, they received a call reporting that a body had been discovered by two individuals out horseback riding. The body was located about 10 to 16 feet off a gravel road in a wooded area approximately five miles from Marie and Jason's home. The body was positively identified as Marie, and the forensic pathologist who conducted her autopsy determined she had died of blunt force trauma to the head and neck. She had been strangled, and there was some vaginal tearing. The other thing he noted, which was unusual, was postmortem mutilation of the body. Incised wounds were on her chest and abdomen, stab wounds on her left thigh, and all 10 of Marie's fingers had been amputated. So let's talk a little bit about this area. Susan, do you want to talk about Lapeer County? Sure. Lapeer County in Michigan is a rural county. As previously mentioned, Miss Warren lived on a farm, and this area had a relatively low 
crime rate. For example, during this time period in 2006, there were only 68 reported incidents of violent crime. And of those violent crimes, two were murders, 10 were forcible rapes, five robberies, and 51 aggravated assaults. In that year as well, there were 541 reported incidents of property crime in the county, 132 burglaries, and 369 thefts. Looking at some additional statistics from the Bureau of Justice, white females had the lowest rate of homicide victimization for all age groups between 1975 and 2005. And in that same time period, only 5% of homicide victims were over the age of 65. Of those, the majority of the victims were male. So the homicide of a female over the age of 65 could be considered fairly rare. And between 93 and 2002, nine out of the 10 crimes that were perpetrated against the elderly were property crimes, not violent crimes. So let's get into Marie's victimology. She was a white female and she was 86 years old. And Bob, do you want to describe Marie for our listeners? Sure. Marie was widowed. She had been married to Robert Warren, but he had passed in either 95 or 96. Marie lived in her own home, which was situated on an 80-acre farm, which was still a working farm. At the time of her death, she had no known romantic or sexual relationship. She was living with her 37-year-old grandson, and she was working the farm, and she sold hay bales. Family-wise, she had one child, her daughter Janet. She lived basically across the street from Marie's residence with her husband. She had three grandchildren, one of whom, as I said, lived with her. In our evaluation of her, of her lifestyle, lending itself to victimization, we found that she was a very low risk of violent crime victimization. She had no known enemies. She wasn't involved in any known disputes or disagreements, lawsuits, etc., that might lend themselves to motivation towards violence. Her favorite pastime was to attend bingo games. She was not someone who used intoxicating substances. She was living in, a again, a rural residential area with a low crime rate. One possible vulnerability was the fact that because she lived under those circumstances and had for years, she was not the most security conscious person and tended to leave her doors and windows unlocked, or at very least was not very attentive in, in making sure they were locked. But she was just kind of globally, she was an active hardworking, single or widowed white woman living in, in a rural situation, working an 80 acre farm, basically living a wholesome lifestyle and not doing anything that would increase one's chance of becoming the victim of violent crime. And despite being 86 years old, she was in great health. She had a number of years left ahead of her. She was still actively working on her farm. It's pretty incredible, incredible woman when you think about it. Yes. Some people look at 86 as extremely old. Apparently in their family, there was great longevity. 
there were many people who lived to quite advanced ages within Marie's family. So it was anticipated that she still had years ahead of her. And that was evident by her lifestyle. She was not slowing down. So based upon a review of the crime and the victimology and other information, let's go into our analysis of this crime. The first step in an analysis is to determine what the likely description is of this individual along the lines of sex and race. So this is not guesswork. We refer to three things, and that's the circumstances that are known about the crime, the statistics regarding race and gender, as far as the area and as far as commission of crimes. So what we found in this case is that and we referred to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, is that between 1976 and 2005, 86% of all white victims of homicide were killed by white offenders. And during that same time period, males committed 88% of all murders. And then we referred to the FBI's Uniform Crime Report. And in 2006, the year that this murder occurred, there were 6,398 murders of victims age 18 and over. And of those, approximately 88% were committed by offenders over the age of 18. All that said, what it means is that what we determined was that Ms. Warren was likely murdered by an adult white male. And as we've said in other shows, this is not always accurate. It's based on probabilities. As you said, Bob, it's based on circumstances. It's based on the area. Lapeer County is majority white. And two things, not that a murderer has to come from that community. However, someone that would be described as being from a different race would have an increased probability of being witnessed. You know, whether we, we like this or not about human nature, people tend to pay greater attention when something seems out of place or when someone seems out of place. So in an instance where something happens in a predominantly white community, there is inherently an increased risk in someone from another race entering that community and committing a crime, all of which just lends support to what the statistics regarding this murder indicated, which is that in all likelihood, we were dealing with a white adult male offender. One of the things investigators always ask witnesses, did you see anything strange or unusual? And rather than asking that question, the question should be, what did you see? So in our assessment, we believe that the offender's primary motive and intention was to murder Marie. Why do we think that? Well, we have the offender entering her home. There were no signs of forced entry, so it is likely that, as we said before, she was not habitual in locking her residence. He enters the home, and based on our analysis of that crime scene, the first thing he does is locate and attack Miss Warren. We say that because her body was found in place, in bed, where she remained throughout this attack, never moved and died where she was sleeping. And she had remained prone on the bed and posed no threat to the offender. While she had weapons in the home, she had no weapons at the ready 
there is indication that she was not even aware that the offender was in the home. He went into her bedroom and started an attack, which likely started with strangulation, manual strangulation. He grabs Miss Warren's neck and he applies manual force attempting to murder her. Manual strangulation is not the easiest method of committing murder in that it takes several minutes. But there is evidence that there was manual strangulation and it, it was quite forcible enough to break the small bone in the neck known as the hyoid bone and cause bruising on the straps of her neck and the related cartilage in the neck. It is likely that because this is not immediate enough, the offender changed his method and reverted to blunt force attack. He struck Miss Warren repeatedly in the area of her head and neck, thereby causing massive bleed and causing her death. She's an 86-year-old woman. This is not a burglary where he needs to disable her. She is not armed. If she got up, the only thing he would need to have done was to prevent her from communicating to any outside entity that he was there and committing a, a burglary. So he prioritizes not just assaulting her or disabling her, but killing her, killing someone who posed no threat. Now, he did take things from the residence, but he did so after the fact, after he had murdered Miss Warren. And we say that because he had no need to control her or maintain visual contact with her while he was locating and removing these items. He could locate them and remove them and know that she was not going to interfere in any way because she was dead already. His primary motive was to murder her, not to disable her to facilitate his burglary. Once he had murdered her and she was disabled, his secondary motive was to obtain items that would be valuable and that he could convert to cash for his own use. He locates a gun safe with two rifles in it and some jewelry, and he finds another rifle, and he takes that too. He takes cash from her purse and from the accordion style folder. And then he leaves, but he leaves with the body. Let's go back to the fact, and we are going to touch on this in our analysis, but some people might get the impression that he disabled her, killed her so that he could go around her house and steal some things so that the murder was practical and that the primary motive is to steal things, but he has to kill her in order to do that. So we're going to touch on in a little bit why we believe that murder is the primary motive. And that has to do with some injuries to her body that I mentioned early on. And also I want to mention potential sexual aspect. She did have injuries to her vagina that could possibly indicate potential sexual activity. I don't think we can say that for sure. It could have happened during the assault itself but there is an underlying sexual component to this. Absolutely. And 
I think for investigators with a female victim of this age, that isn't necessarily the first thing that they consider. But as we saw and previously discussed in the Twilight Rapists, unfortunately, women of any age can be victims of sexual violence. And so it should never be ruled out simply based on the age of the victim alone. Correct. The tear that was discovered in her autopsy, the tear in the tissues of her vagina, this was something attributed to her interaction with the offender and is not something that would likely happen without some trauma having occurred to that area, paramortem. And perpetrated by the suspect. Additionally, there were other wounds inflicted on the body post-mortem that could possibly be sexually motivated as well. Just because they didn't occur in what would be considered a sexualized area of the body does not mean that for certain offenders that this wasn't also some type of sexually motivated action, whether it be something that the offender has done before, or this could potentially be indications of an offender, quote unquote, exploring or experimenting with other actions that might or might not prove to be erotic to the offender. One thing that needs to be clarified when we characterize things this way is that things that we recognize as being sexually motivated are not always obviously sexual. A sexual preoccupation or interest in something bizarre, violent, unusual is known as a paraphilia. And a lot of times when we're looking at murders, what we recognize is paraphilic interaction by the offender with the body of a victim that may not to the average person seem sexual. But when we see it, we recognize that it is likely motivated by some paraphilic sexual motivation. These are the types of injuries that we see with Miss Warren's body that were inflicted post-mortem, served no purpose, no practical purpose in any part of this crime. It's gratuitous. And more than that, this time period whereby he's inflicting these post-mortem injuries increases as any time spent in contact with the body, it increases the likelihood that he will be apprehended. Yet it is valuable enough to him where in weighing out the reward versus the risk, he is willing to take that risk to engage in this behavior. Therefore, we could say it is valuable behavior to the offender. And where there is no practical value to this behavior, we determine that it is paraphilic behavior. And, and our cat has a few <laughs> comments to add. <laughs> For the podcast. <laughs> and he is always right. And as we've already mentioned, this offender removed her body from the scene, and that's very high risk behavior as well. And so, why would the offender take the chance of removing the body and potentially being discovered or witnessed either from the family that lived across the street? or from a police officer out on patrol in the evening. This is where, again, I think we need to consider a possible sexual motive because the 
removal of the body and transported to another area does give the offender the opportunity to continue to interact with the body without the continued exposure of being at the actual residence of the victim. So sometimes these desires to act out can be strong enough to compel an offender to do something that even though they may know that this increases their risk of being found out, it's something that is important and as Bob said, valued enough by the offender to go ahead and go forward with a more risky behavior. It is, I will qualify that by saying it is possible that in the offender's mind, they also felt like that by removing the body and transporting it elsewhere would delay the discovery of the body. This is a rural area and therefore possibly give the offender more time to distance himself, et cetera. But based on the injuries that we do see, the incised wounds on the chest and the right side of the abdomen, the stab wound on the left thigh, again, all done after the victim has passed, as well as even the amputation of all 10 fingers. Now, again, you could say, well, maybe there was concern about DNA and being identified that way. And that is possible. But in this case, I think a little that based with the other types of wounds is a little over the, the top. And again, Somebody may say, well, this was an 85-year-old woman, you know, and how is this sexualized, et cetera. But I think as we've previously discussed and as Bob mentioned with the paraphilias, there's a whole range of things that can potentially be erotic to the individual, whether it be an object or a person, a piece of clothing, et cetera. And sometimes that may be the hardest thing for investigators to wrap their heads around when they're looking at a behavior and trying to understand, well, why did they do this? And because it's not in what the majority of people would quote unquote consider to be normal, it is sometimes the last thing that might be considered that this is actually sexually motivated. Another thing I'd like to point out is that Oftentimes in cases where the body has been removed from the scene, that is usually someone who is very close to the victim. They are trying to make it appear that the crime is something other than what it really is. They're trying to make it seem as if the victim might have left on their own accord. That's a possibility we would need to consider in this case. Is this someone very close to the victim who's trying to cover up their crime? So they're removing the body. But then we see this unusual activity with the body and that points us potentially in another direction. When we see someone remove a body, as you described, to make it look like perhaps they left voluntarily, what we would not likely see is any evidence left behind, such as the bloody bedclothes that were left in this case, which would be indication that someone had removed the body. When someone removes a body from a location, they inherently undertake great risk, risk of further physical contact with that body and removing it, risk of if they place that body in a vehicle of evidence being left within that vehicle. And as has been mentioned, being caught in the company of a murdered body. We see this sometimes more often than not when the location where someone is murdered would raise the likelihood that this offender would be identified. 
meaning that this offender has had past contact with this location and has had contact with the victim at this location. So they want to remove that victim from that location so as not to be prioritized in the investigation. And in those scenarios, we see attempts to clean the crime scene as well. Or to stage the crime scene to look a certain way. That's right. Oftentimes, when offenders feel that the discovery of the murder will prioritize them, there is a great motivation to obscure the fact that the murder has occurred. And they do this by engaging in cleaning of the crime scene or making the crime scene appear as if nothing happened or as if something different happened. This type of manipulation of a crime scene or manipulation of information that investigators will likely gather is collectively known as staging. And staging can take a number of different forms. In this case, it would be, let's say, that the bed were changed. So it appeared that nobody had slept in the bed, or if someone had slept in the bed, certainly they were not murdered in the bed. The house might appear ransacked, disheveled, that someone went through trying to find any of the valuables in the home. There are cases where after a murder takes place, whether the body is still within the uh, location or has been removed, the location itself is set on fire. And other than the removal of the body, we don't really see any staging in this crime scene. We see it for what it is. Somebody went into the home, they killed Marie in her bed, they stole some things, and then they removed her body. For someone looking at this to consider that although the body is removed, it was not done as part of an offender's attempt to stage the scene. It really doesn't help the offender to remove the body in this case, as far as we could see, because although the body's removed, there's still gross evidence of a violent act has occurred. Although there has been a burglary, the items taken could be considered practical to an offender, guns and cash. The house is not ransacked. Not everything of value was taken from the house. And so that although the body was removed. In this case, it does not indicate that the offender had a prior close personal relationship to the victim in that if the body had been found immediately, it would have pointed to that individual. I agree with that. But I also think because the body was removed, and this would be the case in any investigation, they have to rule out those people that are closest to the victim who would have benefited from their death. And one of those ways is to go through other things we notice about the offender, his personality traits and characteristics, and compare those to people that are close to the victim. Do they fit? Kind of overlay them. Do they fit? Is this the type of person? I cannot get over that this offender removed all her fingers. That is such a disturbing part of this case that I think a person who does that would stand out. It would stand out close to the family, would have had other issues. Other family members would have said, this has to be so-and-so. 
that didn't appear to come up in the investigation. But let's talk a little bit about the offender's lack of empathy. first indicator of lack of empathy is the fact that this offender, after dark, entered the home of an 86-year-old woman and strangled and beat her to death. He then removes the body and inflicts post-mortem wounds onto her thigh, her chest and abdomen, and removes all of her fingers. There is a level of callousness displayed here that is not expected even amongst violent criminals. This is an unusual level of callousness. That type of callous personality would not be something that would be easily hidden in day-to-day interactions. It could be, but not easily. Not as people get to know the offender. Yes. You have a brief interaction with the offender. You might not notice it, but those who know the offender would know him to be callous, uncaring, self-centered. This is just brutal. The fact that the removal of the fingers, while there may have been a practical consideration to it, the removal of every finger is gratuitous in its degree. And the post-mortem wounds are gratuitous as a whole. Gratuitous violence, even to a body that has already deceased, It is indicative of potentially of paraphilia, morbid curiosity, a combination of both. In the the facts of this case, this is valued behavior. This is prioritized behavior, and it's worth considerable risk to this offender. Any practical considerations that this offender displayed in the commission of this crime pale in comparison to what he was willing to do to be able to engage in this type of behavior. I agree that there are elements of a lot of practicality to this crime in what he stole, how he stole it. And I would even consider that the removal of the fingers were practical. However, combine that with the postmortem cutting to the body. It's not practical to me. And I think potentially dealing with a serial offender. I think this case is a really good example of why in doing criminal investigative analysis, you can't just look at one aspect of the crime. For an example, had we said, well, they removed the body, so they must have known the victim. This has obviously got to be somebody close to the victim, and that's it. There are so many different things going on here that it is vitally important to look at the case in its entirety and then blend all of those aspects into what is the most likely scenario. Individually, they may point you in a different direction. Collectively, hence through the analysis, collectively, an entirely different opinion of what may have occurred could surface as a result of looking at all of these aspects together. 
when we say that an offender had some prior contact with a victim, we have to look at who the victim is and what their lifestyle consists of to explain what we mean by contact or association. And in the case of someone, a widow running an 80-acre farm, potentially, and we were not informed of the practices of the running of the farm at the time of this analysis, but potentially and even likely is the fact that she needed some help in order to do what she was doing. Could she have had seasonal help? Did she have to have contact with other folks in farm-related business? All of the answers to this are likely yes. This does not mean it's an association that would be immediately apparent to an investigator. She is not isolated, and she has had interactions with various people. So an association with her may not be someone very close to her, but could be someone who has had contact with that location in the past and with that offender in the past. But this might be known by a very small group of people. And in the case of farming, Ms. Warren may not have even known this individual's name, depending on if it was a workaday situation on the farm or a seasonal worker, et cetera, could be any of those things. So although she's she lives habitually at a low risk of victimization, and she day-to-day lives a relatively isolated existence, she still has various levels of social interaction or professional interaction, if you will, with a number of individuals, not all of whom are immediately identifiable. No one's going to say that a random thing happened, like a random murder is going to be more probable than one that happens with it. It's just statistically minute that this would happen by somebody with absolutely no prior contact. I still agree with you, Julia. I think there was prior contact. I don't know that anyone knew it aside from the offender himself. I don't know if Marie Warren would have known it if they asked her, but he may have been someone, he may have been an assistant to someone fixing something at the farm. He may have been an anonymous workaday guy, but there was some contact, enough that he, the blue accordion thing reminds me of a murder I worked years ago where these elderly women would take a shoebox down and pay people who worked on their house out of the shoebox. And when they were murdered, the shoebox was targeted. And as it turned out, it was someone who worked at the house. That accordion folder, yeah, I guess he could have said, oh, there's an accordion folder that must hold all kinds of valuables. But he doesn't ransack the house. He does hone in on this thing. Now, it was in the bedroom. And I still think he may have been in contact with that place. And to select the night that her grandson just happened to be away. Normally he would have been there. So it even could be as simple as the offender drives by the residents all the time, knows who's out and about, is familiar with the people who live there, and then happens to be out and notices that the grandson's vehicle isn't there and believes that she may be alone. I grew up in a rural area. I knew who the families were and and I could tell when somebody wasn't home, if I drove by or walked by. This guy was also the same age as the grandson. He was 43 when he was arrested. 
And the grandson is 37 at the time of the murder. And he was arrested years after. So he's approximately the same age, mm-hmm. may have gone to the same school. They may have been familiar with each other in passing, but in such a small area for them to target an 80 acre farm and where a grandson lives and know that night that nobody was going to be there. Why that farm at that time? And not only that, she had family across the street. Yes. Yeah. And he took time to remove the body. If he thought that the grandson was going to come back, you know, wasn't there at the time, but was there every night. And he might come back at any time. If he thought that, then I would think he would not take the time to do everything he he maybe wanted to do and just get the hell out of there. And it may never come out. But this guy, I believe, had some prior association, however passing, with that house, with the victim. I agree. Let's talk about the offender, the person who was eventually arrested for this crime. In July of 2011, Frank W. Choate was arrested for the murder. He's 52 years old now, so he would have been 35 at the time of the murder. And he was identified as a suspect when a hair found on the bed was a DNA match. He lived in Sandusky, which was approximately five miles from the crime scene. When he was identified, he said he'd loaned his coat and truck to some others who were the ones responsible for the crime. And he said he was only responsible for getting rid of stolen property. And Choate has maintained his innocence and he went to trial and he was found guilty in November of 2012 and is serving a life sentence. And he had a criminal history receiving stolen property, assault. I believe that he was potentially a serial killer or a serial killer in the making. I just find his behavior so disturbing in this case that I think that has to be a consideration. And what I will say is that he has maintained his innocence. He denies that he committed this crime. But I believe that he was caught before he could kill other people and that this was potentially a first attempt. It was very experimental. I think he was interested in postmortem activity with dead bodies. What we concluded in our analysis was that this was a what is known as a sexual murder. It was not a burglary gone bad. It, it was not an attempted rape gone wrong. This was a murder that occurred because there was sexual, that murder itself was motivated by a sexual urge. And after the murder, cutting on a dead body was also sexually motivated. It's a mistake to ever think that you can purely classify behavior into one category, barring any other considerations of any other category. There was an aspect of the offender's actions that were practical for obtaining money, things of value, et cetera. However, that was a secondary consideration. And the primary one, as we said, was to murder Miss Warren. And the reason for that was sexual motivation. That being said, your observation that he could have had a growing interest in this type of activity 
and if he had eluded apprehension, could have engaged in other sexual murders. I agree with you. I think that that is possible, if not likely. And his criminal history potentially could be also sexually motivated, although they are technically labeled as property crimes. I think as we have previously discussed with other cases that sometimes persons who burglarize a home are not doing it solely to gain property or wealth, but there is also a sexual motivation involved in having power over or personally occupying the space of another individual without their consent. Yes. And actually there has been research done that supports that assertion. And it's an unusual time to go into a home late at night or very early morning. We don't know exactly if your sole intent is to burglarize. Most burglaries are done when people are away. At night, people are more likely to be home and sleeping. So I'm always suspicious when you see people who enter homes when there's a good possibility that people are there. I always think that there is an additional motive that is the true motive, not the financial motive, but the sexual motive. Or in this case, the motive that is far prioritized beyond anything monetary or practical. And let's talk a little bit about what it means to be a serial killer or to be labeled a serial killer. I know our unit, the behavioral analysis unit in the FBI has a definition. In the simplest of terms, a serial killer is one who has committed more than three homicides. Right. And there's a cooling off period between those homicides. That's the technical definition of a serial killer. And the reason why we make that distinction with the cooling off period is that killing more than three individuals, but in rapid succession or moving either in one location or moving very quickly from one location to the next is not a serial killing, that that is something that we would define as a spree killing or a mass killing. And just because someone hasn't hit that magic number of three. And in this case, we have no evidence that Frank Choate killed anybody else. In my mind, it doesn't mean they're not a serial killer in their heart. You know what I mean? Yes. And also we are basing the labeling of someone as a serial killer based on those events that are known Certainly in cases of known serial killers, it is those cases that they are able to be matched to through DNA or characteristics of the homicides. Thinking back on some of those cases, I don't know if investigators would ever say, I think we have all of them. That something to keep in mind is that with the labeling of a serial killer based on three or more with a certain period of time in between those homicides to distinguish it from say like a spree killing is that these are just the ones that are known that the three or more are ones that have been identified as having been perpetrated by that particular offender. It may not necessarily be 
all of them because maybe not all of them were discovered. And it's a possibility that he may never have gone on to kill anybody else, but clearly he's very dangerous. Great job by the Lapeer County Sheriff's Office, because I do believe had they not caught him, he would have killed again. So Frank Choate is serving a life sentence, but I don't want to end on that. I want to end on Marie Warren. What a phenomenal woman she was, even at 86 years old, still going strong. And I know that she would rather be remembered that way than as the victim of this crime. Yes, as an energetic, independent woman who, despite having lost her husband several years prior, had maintained her vibrancy and was making a good life on her farm. And that's it for this episode of The Consult. Thank you for listening. This episode of The Consult was written and produced by me, Julia Cowley. The show was edited and mixed by Mike Aris, and the music was composed by John Hansky. If you'd like to learn more, please visit the Consult website at www.truecrimeconsult.com. That's www.truecrimeconsult.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the Consult Pod. Thank you for listening.